Welcome to Biblical Perspectives on Aging, the podcast where you and your church will find answers to the difficult questions that arise as we grow older. On behalf of the Baptist Home, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brames. I'm here with Dr. Ben Mitchell. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, if you would just share a little bit about yourself. I know that you have recently retired from Union University, but how are you continuing to serve and, and what are your interests in serving at this time? Well, thank you, Andy. I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity. I come from a, a pastoral ministry background originally. I was called to ministry back in the, in the late 70s and pastored several churches, both before and during seminary and after seminary. But I, in the context of ministering in a local Baptist church, I, I was confronted with questions like, should we take granny off the ventilator? And I didn't know how to answer those questions. My ethics class at uh, Southwestern Seminary didn't really deal with those kinds of questions. I had a good idea we shouldn't kill granny, but I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know beyond that how, how to even, even think about that. And so in the in the crucible of pastoral ministry, I got interested in, in a more narrow field of, of ethics called medical ethics or bioethics. And I took a course, uh, an orientation course at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville on my day off uh, at the church I was serving. And I got hooked because I saw that here's an area where biblical principles and um, Christian virtues and where decisions have to be made that affect people at the beginning of life and at the end of life and everywhere in between. And here's an area Christians can make a difference. And I wanted to, I wanted to know more about it myself and, and become more involved. So I've been teaching ethics with a concentration in medical ethics since the late 1990s. I taught at Southern Seminary in Louisville. I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the Chicago area for, for a decade. And I'm just finishing, or just have finished, 11 years at uh, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, the fun thing about Union has been, in addition to being on a campus that's full of undergraduates, which is always fun, hmm. uh, is that because Union has a school of nursing that offers up to the Doctor of Nursing practice degree, uh, we have a, a pharmacy school that offers the PharmD, uh, and, uh, of course, the School of Theology and Missions, where I was housed in my discipline, uh, I have, I've had the opportunity to kind of roam across the campus and teach in lots of different areas. About three weeks ago, even though I was retired, I was invited to come back to a biology class and lecture in a biology class on, on research ethics. I had the opportunity to lecture in a nursing class on uh, ethical leadership in nursing, and so... It's been a really uh, wonderful experience for me. I also do some consulting work. I, I do teaching for other institutions. Now I taught a, a week-long doctoral seminar on bioethics at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, though we did it by Zoom. So I still have my hands in teaching. Uh, I'm writing uh, and serve on different boards and, and agencies in, in the capacity of, of ethics. I also have the wonderful opportunity to serve on my hospital ethics committee, uh, local okay. hospital ethics committee. And so being able to serve in those areas is uh, deeply satisfying. Okay. So hands in a lot of different ways. Uh, it may, maybe, maybe stepping down from teaching full-time has actually opened up some <laughs> other opportunities or at least more time for you at this point. Right. So. It has. It has. <laughs> 
Well, uh, most people will be familiar with the idea of ethics, uh, obviously, but they may not realize that ethics is its own field of study and how many different parts there are. You mentioned bioethics just a moment ago being uh, very close to your own heart. Could you give a little bit of a primer to the audience as to what it means to study ethics, or why it's important sure. to study ethics? And, and particularly in this, in this world today, when you started in the 70s, we were moving towards uh, a postmodern, but in this relativist thinking that we have today, how does ethics uh, really play an important role for Christians today? Well, of course, ethics is really for um, for many people, ethics is just applied philosophy. So uh, ethics is a branch of philosophy. You study philosophy and then you look at the application of philosophical principles to the realm of, or the study of what's right, what's wrong, uh, what's good, what's bad, what ought to be the case and what ought not be the case, what we're obligated to do and what we're not obligated to do. For Christians, I think the best way to think about ethics is just applied theology or applied biblical studies. We, we take uh, what we learn in scripture and that informs us about how we ought to live and what we ought to think and do and be in, in the world. And so one can approach ethics either philosophically usually um, or theologically uh, or biblically. And then uh, ethics, because it's an applied discipline, has many different branches. I have taught a business ethics course, and those are, that's not a, a contradiction in terms. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the military ethics is another, is another area. In fact, I just recently supervised a dissertation on the use of drone technology in the military and okay. what, does, what are the ethics of using mechanical devices, technological devices like drones in the military. Nursing ethics, um, pharmacy ethics, uh, environmental ethics is a huge area. The ethics of food and economic ethics, how okay. we understand right and wrong economically, all of those are just branches of the larger the larger discussion of uh, what's right and what's wrong and how do we know and how do we decide. I think one of the most important things to think about when one thinks about ethics is that we make ethical decisions every day. We, we decide to do things every day that have implications about what we understand right to be and wrong to be and what our values are. Most of the time, because they're uncontroversial, we don't think much about them. But, mm -hmm. but have a, a huge impact. I'll give you a quick example. So uh, we think of medical ethics sometimes as just about dilemmas. What do we do when we have a pregnancy that's not unplanned for? What do we do when, when we have too few ventilators and we have a lot of COVID-19 patients? How do we decide who gets the ventilators? What do we do with, with um, uh, transplantation of, of organs? All, all those dilemmas. But the very, the, the very encounter that a physician or a, a nurse has with a patient is, is um, uh, suffused or, or immersed in ethical, ethical uh, concerns and ethical issues. If I go to a doctor and I have a dis-ease or if I'm feeling unwell and they put me in a gown that has no back, there's automatically a power differential. They have much more knowledge about 
my potentially about my condition than I have. I don't have the medical training. They have, they have uh, the wisdom and art and science of medicine. And so now we're in a situation that has lots of ethical implications. Mm. And um, uh, we, we don't think about it that way sometimes until there's a, until there's a problem or until there's a, a crisis. But, but our whole lives are, are uh, we live our lives in ways that inhabit ideas, notions about, of right and wrong, good and bad. It just is the nature of the human condition. Very much so. And that, that condition is changing. Uh, and again, in, in more modern times with the relevant, uh, relativistic type of idea, could you speak a little bit about how, how we should really steady our base, you know, firm up our base yeah. in our understanding, you know, with, with that idea of, of relativism in our day? Yeah, let me, let me talk a little bit about relativism as a way of getting into that. Um, uh, since at least the 1960s, maybe late 1950s, we describe our world, in, at least in, in the West and, and in America especially, as, as being uh, relativistic. And, and that, that um, means one thing to one person and makes sure. it meaningful to others. So, so the, way, the way I put it is, Let's, just, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about what I think is right and what you think is right or what I think is wrong and what you think is wrong. And eventually the conversation in, in many cases is going gonna, is gonna to end up with our disagreeing, saying, well, you know, who's to say what's right or wrong? Mm. Or, or um, uh, well, you know, what you think is right and wrong is not what I think is right and wrong. And, and so the relativist world is the world in which those notions of right and wrong are not universal. They are, they are relativistic, or they are relative to the person and the context. And it turns out that while that idea has a lot of um, currency or a lot of, a lot of popularity in our culture, it turns out not to be really true. And here's what I mean. So in, in certain Middle Eastern cultures, if you show the bottom of your foot to someone, it's a terrible offense. Mm-hmm. Foot is, is dirty, uh, you know, the sandals are porous, and, and so to show the bottom of your foot is an insult. Well, in American culture, most, most of the time, we don't have any problem showing our feet, walking barefoot, showing the bottom of our foot. If I, if I put the bottom of my foot in front of you, you, would, you might say, you know, you really should do a little better job of hygiene, but <laughs> um, you're not going to be particularly offended by that. But even though we differ in, in Middle Eastern cultures and in Western culture, even though we differ on whether or not it's appropriate to show the bottom of your foot, what we do agree on is the importance of respect and the importance of honoring people to whom honor is due. Or I, when I lived in the Chicago area, I lived in the, the north suburbs where my university uh, and divinity school were. Um, very, very posh area. I mean, in fact, this is one of the communities in which uh, uh, Home Alone was filmed, uh, those, okay. uh, kind of McMansions in the Chicago area. Uh, and in downtown Chicago, there was a really, really tough, tough neighborhood called Cabrini Green. It's cleaned up a little bit now, but but when I moved to Chicago, Cabrini Green was a police uh, a place even the Chicago Police Department wouldn't go in at night. Wow. Um, so I, I was thinking about um, uh, the two cultures, the the back- lawyer culture of the North Shore of Chicago 
and the gang culture in Cabrini Green. Uh, do they not? Do they not have similar notions of right and wrong? It turns out that they do. Um, if you violate the the right and wrong uh, ideas of the bankers in Kenilworth, one of the, the, the uh, suburbs, um, they'll take you to they'll take you to court, and and they're going to seek to get justice. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you're a gang member in Cabrini Green and the opposing gang kills one of your gang members, you're going to try to, um, you're going to try to exercise justice for your gang against their gang. So it turns out that even though the ideas of, of what justice looks like may be very different, these cultures share a common interest in and commitment to justice and fairness. So relativism, Relativism, it, it turns out, is not as illuminating or helpful an idea as I think lots of lots of folks um, think. It turn it turns out that there are some human universal values that that we all seem to share, and and one way I know that we share them is because if if um, in in the culture, if you don't share some of those values, we'll put you in jail. Will, or we will uh, uh, put you in a treatment because um, you now are, you now have have uh, violated the the shared norms of that of that culture. Um, so relativism is isn't uh, perhaps as helpful as, as we thought, but but it's it's a good way to um, it's a good way to stop a conversation over a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, you know, what's good for you may not be good for me. You know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not so sure of that. Yes, um, we do have different notions of, of, of beauty, but I've never known a single person to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon on the dawn morning uh, when the sunlight pierces the sky and and the, the sunlight um, comes down the strata of rocks in the Grand Canyon, I've never known a single person to look at that and say, yuck. There is something that resonates with the human soul when we see beauty. The same is true. There's something that resonates with the human soul when we see um, good. When we see somebody do something that is truly honorable and good, we say, yes, that is good and right. And, and I, th I think we need to look deeper um, at our notions of right and wrong, which is the area of ethics. We, we ought to look deeper rather than being as superficial as relativism uh, makes us uh, seem to be. I think that's a great explanation. Uh, obviously, you know, you're, you're well versed in this and, and I think that will help clarify some ideas for some of our audience. Uh, I want to shift gears now because this podcast is about uh, those who are aging primarily and, and you have written a book. One of your books uh, is called Ethics and Moral Reasoning. And I want to center the remaining questions in or around that book. In one portion of that book, uh, you discuss the Ten Commandments as a backdrop uh, to moral reasoning and a commandment such as honor your father and mother. Now, when, when we teach that in church, what we generally think is children, you need to honor your, your father and your mother, which is true, but uh, we can still honor our father and our mother much later in life. And in fact, that's uh, oftentimes when it becomes more challenging. So how would you apply a commandment like that to uh, someone 
who is a father or a mother who is not able to take care of themselves, what would the ethics say, moral reasoning say, uh, about how a, a middle-aged child, for instance, like myself, uh, should take care of an aging parent that was unable to take care of themselves? That's such a great question, Andy, and it's it's one that I'm I'm actually going through myself. My my father is 87 years old and uh, has all kinds of health uh, problems right now. And even though he's still able to live somewhat independently, uh, he has he has lots of need, and I'm I try to try to to help him. And and this has been sort of my what I've been experimenting with, if you will, I've been trying to learn what does it mean at 65 to try to honor my 87-year-old father. You, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, the text, honor your father and mother, is found first in, in the Ten Commandments. The commandments are principles. They are, they are uh, rules, but I like, I like principle better because rule makes us feel like we're rule followers, but they are principles to guide our behavior. And, and the, other, the other dimension of, of ethics is virtues or character traits. So you have the, you have the Ten Commandments, for instance, and then, then you have the virtues. Uh, Jesus said in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. These are not laws to be followed. They are character traits to inhabit. And what we have in scripture are both principles and virtues. We have both commandments and we have Pauline injunctions, for instance, also have the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And um, all of that, all of that comes uh, uh, or is brought to bear on uh, those, those family bonds that we have, uh, kinship bonds that we have, say, in marriage or in parenting, uh, or in the case that you're describing, in, in being a child uh, who now has a, a parent who has needs that, uh, that uh, go beyond what he's able to, to, to do um, on his own. And there's a, there's a part of, you know, there's a part of that um, where you just say, well, neighbor love should take care of that. Love your neighbors yourself. Well, yes, but as a son, do I have an even greater obligation to my father or to my mother than I do as a neighbor? And I would, I would argue that we, we do. I would argue that our duty or our obligation and our privilege uh, to care for our family members, those, those with whom we share these family or kinship bonds, um, is even stronger than the duty that we have to love um, our neighbor, partly because of the investment that those parents have made in us. Sure. You know, my, my <clears throat> dad took care of me, my mom took care of me uh, when I was a snotty-nosed little boy, and they did things for me that um, I'm sure I don't even remember now that I would, I would turn my nose up at today. <laughs> you know, any parent knows that. And now that um, my dad is losing uh, some of his short-term memory, and now that uh, he's not physically able to do the kinds of things that he wants to do, uh, now under the restrictions of, of a global pandemic, um, his relationships with others have been, have been diminished. He was going to a, uh, a veteran's home and having coffee with the guys at the veteran's home 
that got shut down uh, in you know, the middle of March. All the other relationships he had in his life have been taken away under the restrictions of, of the pandemic. So, so as a son, um, surely um, I have a greater obligation to uh, try to care for my dad and to honor him, to respect him. And that's hard for me. Don't misunderstand what I, what I said. Um, I don't mean that I have a hard time honoring my dad. What I have a hard time doing is not um, treating him like a child, uh, not doing things for him or to him uh, without his permission or without his uh, uh, or giving or giving his his consent to 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 truly honor him as um, the man that he is, the person that he is under God, and um, not to um, not to to uh, treat him as if he were a child, and that's a challenge. I'm learning, and 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 I would love to hear from folks who've done this uh, before and done it more often than I will do it. But I'm learning to walk that tightrope sometimes between um, uh, his being his own person under God again, um, and my simply being um, available to him if he needs me, uh, rather than my just saying, "Dad, I'll do this for you. I'll take. I'll take. Let me take that. I'll. 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 I'll take it and do that for you." There's a part of me that wants to do that, um, and and yet I I can't. I can't violate his, um, his I, I, can't, I can't disrespect him by just stripping him of all of his, um, his own decisions and his own, his own abilities, you know. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been a real challenge, but, it, but I think it's an important one. And, you know, I'm a boomer and um, there are more of us uh, who are going to have to both learn what it means to honor our fathers and mothers and then also learn what it means to have children uh, who care for us and um, uh, it's it's uh, it's something we've got we have to do and that's why I'm so excited about your podcast for instance I mean um, with a growing aging population uh, with us living longer uh, not always living more healthily but living longer mm -hmm. The issues are are um, alive and they are urgent in, in many cases. So uh, thank you for doing this. Well, absolutely. Well, I, the question that you just asked, we, we will undoubtedly have people come on here at some point, Ben, and, and talk about how to best do that, uh, you know, to... to have that balancing act to protect the dignity, you know, yeah. of, of, yeah. of those people that we do love and respect. But as you said, how do we continue to show that? So what, one of the things from an ethical theory perspective that you mentioned in your book is to define uh, happiness. And uh, what, what are some of the issues that change that perspective of happiness? You know, a young child, a, a lollipop is happy, uh, makes you happy, you know, but, but as we age, other things do. So what is, what are you, what do you see as some of the factors that shape our happiness as we, as we age? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think our language is, is a challenge here because for many people, happiness just means, you know, being kind of frivolous and light and uh, kind of happy, 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 jolly, jolly, jolly. Sure. But, but the idea of happiness that, that got, it's thinking about ethics, at least guides it rightly, 
um, is much more robust and much more uh, complex than that kind of happiness. It's more like it's more like human flourishing. What does it mean to flourish? Mm. What does it mean to what does it mean to the, the army used to have that slogan: "Be all that you can be." Um, the, and the challenge in aging, I'm learning myself, not 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 by caring for my dad, but being 65. The challenge for aging is trying to be all that I can be, given uh, the fact that I'm I'm now growing in some of my own limitations. There are things I can't do at 65 that I could have done at 35. And how do I flourish? How do I how do I be all that I can be, um, given who I am at this time in my life with, with the various um, uh, constraints and, and the context in which I, and so one of the things I can do is I can fight against it all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's, and, and that I'm afraid that that builds bitterness and it builds a sense of, of, uh, of uh, that, my, that, that life is not fair, you know, life is not fair. And um, I, I think that, I think that that, is going to to fight against our being. If that's our idea of what what it means to uh, grow older, um, then I think we're going to be very very unhappy people. And and as you know, and as I know, there are plenty of unhappy people out there. But trying trying to to navigate that 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 territory of understanding one, we have a good and loving heavenly Father. Uh, who cares for us and who providentially uh, superintends our lives, and knowing too that that um, because we live in a fallen world, um, uh, aging and its and and many of the things that go along with aging and disability are part of what what it means. Uh, we can't fight against it. We have to learn how to reorder our lives in ways that that allow us still to flourish. So in this, in this global pandemic, I'm, I'm a bit of a people person. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, um, uh, I can't live without um, lots and lots and lots of people in my life, but I, I like people. I, I enjoy relationships. And during this, this time, it's this season, it's been, it's been hard for people who like relationships. Mm-hmm. Sure. Social distancing. What is that? I know what physical distancing is, but I'm not even sure social distancing is right. <laughs> so I've taken a pen in hand, an old-fashioned, actually this is a disposable one, but an old-fashioned fountain pen in hand, and I've gotten my cards and note cards and envelopes out and good old stamps, and I'm writing letters to uh, or note cards to people in my life group, and I'm writing note cards to people that I know who are are uh, shut in and not able to get out. Um, and I'm, I'm doing that with, I know that there are certain limitations that I have, but that doesn't mean that I have to, to fold up into a fetal position and, and, not, and not reach out to other people. So for me, at least, uh, for me, human flourishing means given the limitations, I'm gonna try to make the best of, of the opportunity that I, that I have. Uh, even if it means going back to handwriting notes, um, and I think I think that's a maybe a trivial example, but I think it's an example of of how we have to reorder our thinking given 
the limitations that come come as a result of, of aging or uh, limitations that come with caring for someone who is in need of in, in need of more intensive care than than they might have in, in the past. Um, how do we flourish? How do we how do we live a life that is pleasing to God and satisfying to our souls, um, given uh, where we are in in providence and God's providence? I think the distinction that you just made there regarding the idea of flourishing is so helpful. Uh, one of the one of the thoughts that I had a question to ask uh, to prompt you was about how do we how do we handle our own need for happiness as we are caring for others? But when we wrap that within the idea of flourishing, uh, obviously from a Christian perspective, our, our need to serve, our desire to serve in many ways, but our need to serve uh, really kind of encapsulates that. So what, what would you say from that perspective, Dr. Mitchell, about um, our need to be flourishing and those that are aging, again, using your father as an example, perhaps if you wish, how does his need to continue to flourish, maintaining his dignity, and your need to flourish, happiness, if you will, uh, coincide? How can those two coincide? Yeah, I, I think that's that's well put. One of the things that I have I have um, had to come to grips with, and it's been a, it's been a, a good thing, a joyful thing to come to grips with, is that I now realize, especially given my retirement that I now have an opportunity to spend more time with my dad than I, than I ever, than I ever have since I was a kid. In fact, maybe even more time than when I was a kid because of his work schedule. So uh, I have lots of time with my father and I'm learning from him. Um, I'm, I'm uh, able just to be a friend in some ways, however, however much um, uh, a son can be a friend. I'm being, being a friend to him. And we see one another multiple times every day. We have a meal together in the evenings with my wife every day. And um, so, so that's one way that, that I'm finding that I'm flourishing as I care for him and hopefully am contributing to, to his flourishing. Um, but, I, but I will say this, I, I think it's important, and this is, this is my nursing colleagues who would, or my social work colleagues who would tell us about this, too. And they would say um, that you have to remember that self-care is important too. That in order for you to in order in order for you to contribute to someone else's flourishing, you have to care for yourself too. And I think this for Christians, this is where the spiritual disciplines are so important uh, for our reading of scripture, uh, prayer, meditation, silence. Um, uh, uh, fasting, all of those spiritual disciplines help us to stay centered ourselves in, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that context, then we, we hopefully will have the energy uh, to uh, serve, um, you know, in my case, to serve my dad. So caring for oneself is important too. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing that I've, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to definitely watch the podcast. Um, one of the things I'm interested in, I want to know, um, there are just some things I realize I can't do for my dad because they're not the things that either a son would do for a father or, or that anyone would do for anyone else. I, he, for, you know, for instance, um, I can't be Jesus to my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't fulfill his spiritual 
needs and and um, I can't I can't take the role that my mother had in his life I can't be my mother to my dad um, there are just needs he has that are not able to be fulfilled by a son and maybe by a hu another human being maybe only God alone by his spirit can, can fulfill those needs that he has so so my my sense of flourishing in his will depend somewhat on my sorting out what it is that I can actually do for him and not being frustrated for not doing things that I can't do for him. You know, um, same thing happens in marriage. I mean, there are some, there, there are just some things that I can't do for my wife and she can't do for me. Those are spiritual needs that only the, the Holy Spirit can supply. And um, uh, the same, the same is true in this relationship with my dad. And so if I become, if I get frustrated all the time because I can't, I can't take away all his fear um, or I can't, I can't take away his loneliness after losing my mom. If I'm frustrated all the time because of that, um, then that impacts my flourishing. And I'm sure, I'm certain that's going to impact his flourishing. He'll feel the frustration in my, in my uh, presence with him. Um, uh, but those are just, those are just human needs that I can't supply. I can be there. I can present and to some degree I can help with loneliness, but he lost a wife of 65 years. You know, uh, that's not going to be replaced, uh, overnight anyway. And, uh, certainly, certainly not by a son, you know, that's just not my role. I have other, I have other gifts and privileges, but that's not one of them. So insightful, so helpful, uh, the way you're articulating some of these ideas, especially as you go through, as you're processing your own uh, needs in this time, I think is so helpful. And, and so I, I want to jump back to the false understanding of happiness that, that so yeah. many have in, in your book, because because I, I think the flourishing distinction is so helpful. But in your book, you mentioned philosophers such as Kant and Bentham and others. Um, their understanding of happiness, their understanding of reason has greatly distorted the biblical morality, the biblical understanding, uh, and including the understanding to love. And as you talk about flourishing ourselves, you know, the, the, the passage, you know, Jesus command, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we must love ourselves in order to properly love and, and to flourish. So, so how, how do some of these, uh, philosophers that have been influenced and came from the enlightenment, uh, really impact the way so many people, understand happiness and how does that impact how we process those who are aging in our day-to-day? -day? Yeah, Andy, you're a philosopher. That's great. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, much of what we know today as happiness and much of what we know today about individualism, that we are these, we are these individual, we are these individual consumers of happiness comes from the enlightenment the emphasis on the individual. And for, for utilitarians like, like Mill, happiness is defined as the maximization of pleasure and the minimization of pain. Uh, well, that we, we can imagine where that goes. Um, in fact, um, there's a movie some years ago with Woody Allen um, uh, that you know, when Woody Allen kind of played on this notion of, of happiness by, by talking about this pleasure orb. And he always had this little orb that he carried around. And this was supposed to, this was supposed to just continually feed 
him happiness. Well, it turns out happiness isn't, isn't gotten that way. If there were a chair that you could sit in and it would just make you completely whatever we think happy is, if we would have this, this emotional experience that, that many people describe as happiness, um, it, it, it would, it would be more like a, a bad trip on drugs than it would be anything like what, what happiness really is. In order for us to, to know what it means to flourish, to know what it means to be happy in, in the, the biblical sense, we, we also have to have deprivation. and we, um, we have to have the contrasting experiences you know, no pain, no gain kind of, kind of experience. And it is interesting that, that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, um, says, blessed are those who mourn in spirit. And some translations actually have, uh, happy are those who are spirit to show the, the, the contrast and, con and it's not a contradiction. It's really uh, called an antinomy, but, but to show, to show how, how in our, in our worldly uh, way of thinking, those things seem to be in conflict with one another. How could you be happy and mourn? How could you be happy and be meek? Aren't the happy people the people who take charge of life and go for the gusto, as they used to say? No, it, it turns out that, that blessedness or happiness is an, an internal state uh, of the soul uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, who enables us to be, as Paul would say, to be content in whatever state we're in. Um, to be to be content in whatever state we're in, and our culture fights against that. Our culture is built on the idea that um, happiness is in controlling the state that you're in. Mm either through drugs or alcohol or sexual uh, experimentation or, or the next new gadget or um, some great uh, roller coaster experience, literally, I mean, like at a theme park. Happiness is about controlling the state that you're in. Paul says that we need to learn to be happy, to be content, to flourish uh, whatever the state we're in. And of course, his his life was an example of that. His Christian life was an example of that. Wasn't it? Um, whether he was in a jail uh, or planting a church, Paul embraced uh, that as God's providence for him at that time, and and um, uh, uh, seemed to to flourish. Uh, again, very well said. I appreciate that answer. The The scriptural basis for this particular podcast is Psalm 71. And in there, it talks about the, the strength being spent and being forsaken or feeling abandoned by others, which is true for many of those who are advancing in age, especially those, let's say your father's age and above, uh, or, or even lesser than that for many. How does an understanding of ethics allow us to provide dignity rather than simply abandoning, rather than simply letting their strength be spent and not caring about them? How, how does a proper understanding of biblical, biblically-based ethics uh, challenge us, even encourage us uh, to, to provide that dignity that they need? 
Well, I think, first of all, we, we have to be reminded of what Scripture teaches about the nature of human beings being made in the image and likeness of God. Every human being has human dignity because they're made in the image of God. Um, and therefore, we, we have obligations to one another uh, because we are imagers of the, the living God. And um, it's interesting, Genesis chapter 9 is an interesting point. In Genesis chapter 9, uh, this is after the flood, and God renews his covenant with Noah and Noah's children, and he uses language like you find in the, in the, the earlier Genesis covenant, uh, be fruitful, multiply, replenish uh, the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, etc. But then he says something really interesting in, in addition to that. Um, God tells Noah, he says, Noah, you you're given the, the animals uh, for sustenance. You can, you can kill the animals for food, just as I gave you the green plants and, and every other thing in the earlier covenant. Now you can kill the animals for food, but if you kill another human being, your life will be required. Um, and and mm -hmm. then, then here's the punchline. For or because in the image of God, God has made men and women. God has made humanity. We are unique creatures uh, in God's created order. We are neither angels nor beasts. We are made in his image and made in his likeness. And when Jesus came, the second person of the Trinity came and wrapped himself in human flesh, he made sacred our humanity. So, so we have an obligation. We have a, a, both a duty and a privilege. We have an obligation to care for those who are made in his image and made in his likeness. And, you know, many evangelical Christians um, are very sensitive to that at the beginning of life and the abortion debate. But, but um, one Christian uh, ethicist used to talk about ethics at the edges of life the beginning of life and the end of life. And what we're talking about now are, are ethics at the other end of life. Mm -hmm. Just as respect for the unborn is so important at the beginning of life, respect for the aging is so important at the end of life because we're made in God's image and made in God's likeness. And that's why I think we read things like in scripture, honor your father and your mother. I think that's why we have those uh, poignant examples in scripture of, of how that can go wrong, Absalom and David, mm -hmm. how that can go wrong. And so I, I think we mustn't uh, abandon uh, other uh, image bearers of God at the end of life just because they can't contribute what we think. Uh, they can't contribute what we think they ought to contribute to us. Oh. We have a in our hospital, we have a program uh, called No One Dies Alone. Uh, no One Dies Alone trains lay people to be able to be present with people who are dying if their family members can't be here or, or if uh, they're estranged from their family uh, because no one should die alone. Hmm. That's good. It's a testimony to our to human dignity. It's a testimony to our being made in the image and likeness of God. And if no one should die alone, surely no one should be, should be permitted to live 
uh, a life of abandonment uh, before before their death. We we have we have an obligation to care for one another uh, at the end of life and everywhere in between. Uh, again, well said. I, I appreciate all, all the insights that you're providing for our audience today. And and as you said, as you listen to this and watch these in the future, I hope you get the insights back, fed back to you as well. Would, sure is, there, is there anything else that you would like to share, perhaps something that I haven't asked that, that you would like to address with the audience at this time? No, just one other, just one other theme um, um, about um, why we ought to care for one another, not abandon one another in our, in our elderly years, uh, older years. Um, we're made for community. Mm -hmm. uh, made, we, we who are made in God's image are made to live in community with other people. Um, and uh, that's what excites me about um, Baptist homes. That's what excites me about uh, really, really good um, assisted living centers uh, and other places is that they, they aren't putting people with disabilities and people who are aging in containers and walking away, they are they are now live. They they are honoring them by putting by by putting community wrapping community around around them, and that's so vitally important for for us as human beings uh, to be to be in the presence of others as we will be in eternity. Uh, to be in the presence of others is so very vitally important. Uh, what it means to be human. Uh, as you said earlier, that's what makes the whole social distancing for. Uh, you know, various nursing homes, rehabilitation centers, whatever you want to call them, the, the distancing and the lack of being able to have families uh, or ministers or, or whomever to come and visit uh, just just uh, amplifies that situation for so right. many in that, in that environment. And I think, I think COVID-19 is going to make us rethink some of that. I think, I think the experience we've had the last six months and we'll probably have the next few months is, is going to change the institution we call independent living or, or nursing homes or assisted living. I, I, think, I think we're going to see everything from architectural changes that will, that will, will make, um, make it uh, possible for more people to be present in the lives of, of, of folks in the future. I think we'll, we'll see policy changes. I think lots of things will change over time as a result of what we're learning now. But, but as you well know, some of the stories have just been tragic and dehumanizing. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe unavoidably, I'm not sure, but, but I hope we can learn ways to prevent it from happening this weekend. Yes, well said. Well, uh, Dr. Mitchell, how, how can the audience pray for you and your ministry in the days and, and months ahead? Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, obviously, my, my care for my dad is important to me, and, and I want to do that well. And so just pray for insight and, and uh, perseverance uh, and pray that I don't get on his nerves. Uh, and, you know, I, I continue to have teaching opportunities, and I'm writing. Uh, so, so uh, those kinds of that kind of prayer support would be very uh, valuable and important uh, to me. Uh, but just that you would even think in the busyness of life that somebody might might pray for you is such an encouragement. So, thank you for for offering. Well, absolutely, my pleasure. And and again, thank you very much for your time and and this interview. And I know you will your words will help others uh, in listening to this. And again, I hope that in turn you can receive some benefit from this podcast in future episodes as well. I'm certain that'll be the case. Thank you so much, Andy. You're very welcome. Thank you, sir. 
Thank you for joining us for this interview today. The Baptist Home has provided Christ-like care to the aging since 1913. To learn more about the biblically informed resources and solutions provided by the Baptist Home, go to www.thebaptisthome, that's all one word, .org. Again, www.thebaptisthome.org. You will find links to previous podcasts, a growing number of church resources, and detailed information about residential and long-term care communities. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Andy Brams, asking you to be a voice for the aging.